You are now tuned in to the Bring in the Heat podcast. In this episode, addressing PFAS remediation challenges through university vendor collaboration. And now, it's time for your host, Gorm Heron, CTO of TRS Group, to bring the heat. I started in this field in 95 after I got my PhD doing um, fundamental research in the laboratory and on paper, figuring out for, for Dean Apple at the time, not, not PFAS, I don't think we even knew about that name yet at the time, but trying to find solutions for how to get this, this nasty, nasty Dean Apple out of the, the ground. Started studying fundamental properties of TCE and PCE and came up with these, these curves of changes that happens when you heat from, from freezing temperatures to the boiling point of water, for instance, and, and you know, found among other things, uh, confirmed research others had done that these chemicals would vaporize um, pretty easily if you heat to hundred degrees. So that was my beginning. And you can say, what are the steps between, you know, being in the laboratory and, and thinking you have a solution to doing this in, in, a, in a predictable way and to actually do it where you are promising that you are doing this in situ remediation safely and effectively. We have had so many challenges to go from the laboratory into the full scale and we've always uh, luckily been able to, to address those challenges using, using research and, and development um, to get to where we are today. Um, while we've been doing all that, there's also been some of, of the university professors that have been checking us and have been kind of keeping us honest. And one of them, and our favorite, is Kurt Benell from Brown University. Um, and I'd like to start by asking you, Kurt, how it kind of came to be that, that you did a lot of, of, of fundamental research also with thermal remediation and, and kind of checking our claims. I started working on thermal about the same time as Gore, maybe a little later, um, in the mid to late 90s. Um, and I, my first project was an EPA project. And I was very curious. I go to these conferences like Battelle and I uh, see claims about degradation of the TC and PC and biological activity with CO2 production. And I was, I, I've always been a little skeptical. Maybe it's because of my advisors when I was a PhD student. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but anyway, I, I was like, I'm not so sure about this. And so uh, we, we got a couple projects to look at that and um, develop these systems to look at it. So our first thing was really to look at, um, can we get degradation of these compounds? And we were, at that time, we were primarily focused on ERH, which is lower temperature, um, about 100 degrees C. And, and obviously those are easy to run in the lab too. Once you get above 100 C, things are, are tough experiments in the lab. But even then, one of the critical things is when you heat something and you're looking at gas phase, um, you're almost in the most difficult system to work with. Or a lot of studies were done in uh, VOA vials, and we found that those don't work at all. And you can't get mass balance. You have all kinds of losses. <clears throat> and so we went to these sealed ampules. And the cool thing about these was you can have three phases. So you can have a solid phase, a, a liquid phase, and a gas phase. And then when you crack these open, after you say heat them for a couple of weeks, you basically crack them open, but you invert them. And if you hold them at an angle, the, uh, the capillary pressure holds the water 
and you can actually stick a needle through the water into the gas phase and then collect your gas phase sample and inject it on the on the GC. And that's what we did to, to look for these daughter products. And we looked at a lot of different sites and we didn't see a whole lot of degradation of TCE and PC at these temperatures. And, and I won't go into all the details of those studies, but <clears throat> the, the neat thing is we started to see at higher temperature, we did see a lot of CO2 production, which people had seen and attributed to biological activity, um, but it was really the soil degrading. So you were breaking up some of the soil organic matter. We started creating things like um, acetylene. <laughs> when we had, a, one time we had an explosion in the lab because we created too much acetylene. Um, and then we have other compounds that, that actually can serve, can break down and serve as electron donors uh, for biological activity. And that's one of the things um, that we've seen and we studied in a subsequent study. So the key thing here is if you see reaction products, it doesn't mean that the parent compound is really breaking down. It could be soil degradation. Um, and also it's really hard to close the mass balance unless you have a sealed system. So if you're in the field and maybe Gorm or Emily are trying to you know, figure out where the mass is, it's really hard when you heat things up and put them in the gas phase. Um, and so we had to go to the ampules to, in order to get that done in the lab. You also, you also looked at biological reactions with Frank Loeffler when, when you were at Georgia Tech, didn't you, and studied basically yeah. temperature so, and bio, yeah. Yeah, so at that time, you know, there was a, as many of you know, in the remediation um, world, um, dehalocortes was discovered and it could break down cis-DCE to ethene. And so there's a big push to uh, do bioremediation. And what we were trying to do was combine uh, thermal and bio. That was the base of the project. And so in the industry, you, you hear a lot about um, reaction rates doubling for every 10 degrees. You heat something up. Um, would, that, would that be true for this reductive dechlorination as well? Yeah, so the interesting thing about this, Gorm, is it, it, it works really well um, up to about 35 or 40 degrees C. Um, and we get that type of increase, you know, really dramatic increase. Um, but above those temperatures, dehalocortes turns out to be quite sensitive to temperature. So what we found was when you get above about 40 degrees C, the dehalocortes shut down. Um, they can rebound back, um, but they don't. They won't really uh, function actively at those higher temperatures. So from a you know a practitioner perspective, you may see this um, type of accelerated uh, degradation occurring outside the actual really hot zone. Fantastic. So Emily, um, you, you lead the research and development for a pretty small company with 70 people. Um, I think it's relatively unusual that as a company that size has its own research and development program. And would you, would you mind explaining to us um, how, that, how that is and why we, why we have that? Sure. Yeah, I, I, the short answer is that we, it helps us bring technology improvements to the field faster. So I completed my PhD in 2010, and what really drew me to TRS was having the opportunity to actively integrate research into field implementations. And TRS, we've been developing our R&D program over the last 20 years, and we have employees across the company that support our R&D program. Over half of our employees are actively contributing to R&D pro projects. 
And essentially we have three different branches to our R&D program. We have a lab branch and essentially within that branch, that's where we perform treatability tests. We evaluate new emerging contaminants and the different target temperatures that we would need to reach remedial goals. We also have a field implementation branch. So that's where we really focus on heating optimization and improvements that we can make to our designs and our heating infrastructure, our equipment. And then we, our third branch is post-heating analysis. So we put a lot of time into analyzing all of the data we collect during thermal remediations. We collect and maintain all of that in a database. And essentially what we do is we look at all of the data that we collect and we compare those data sets to what we would have predicted in our thermal modeling. And this has helped us over the years to actively refine our thermal models and improve our ability to um, estimate the amount of time it takes to reach remedial goals. You, you mentioned laboratory. Um, have you, what have you done for PFAS in, in research and development? Yeah, so uh, multiple years ago, we did an evaluation in the lab, looking at different temperatures and the gas reduction percentages that were achieved. And what we were able to see is that we could achieve a 99.998% reduction of detected PFAS at 400 degrees Celsius. And then as a follow-on to this work, we were also worked on heating infrastructure optimization to reach these target temperatures and also the uh, vapor and liquid treatment equipment that will re be required. So when we're volatilizing and removing these PFAS impacted vapor and liquid streams, we wanna make sure we have the equipment that can handle and effectively treat these compounds. Very good. So, but I guess it's not enough to have the heaters and a way to put them in the ground, right? You also have to make sure that the soil in between the heaters gets really hot. Um, mm -hmm. How are we studying that? Yeah, so we um, put a lot of focus in our research in power optimization and power delivery. Actively during a thermal remediation, we want to look at how effectively are we heating a, a treatment volume and how does, that, what, how does that compare the required energy that we would have anticipated needing um, to what we actually input. And then um, what that can give us when we're actively evaluating that, that can help us um, help show us if there's unexpected cooling effects that might be occurring, we can actively adjust and modify our heating infrastructure in the field. And if we see that we're not heating as effectively um, at certain depth intervals as we would like to, we can modify those heaters in the field. So we can essentially modify it. We take measurements to ensure that everything is within design parameters and we're able, it doesn't require any welding and we're able to replace that heater within about an hour once the heater's built. Um, and, and so it's um, essentially a, a big part of what we focus on and because we know if we can optimize um, power delivery, the faster we're able, the more effectively we're able to deliver power, the faster we are able to heat up and reach the overall remedial goals. Very good. Um, Kurt, I know you're involved in, in PFAS research as well. And would you mind explaining to us kind of how you, how you choose your topics and your research focus and, and how you came to be involved in, in PFAS research? As an academic, uh, you know, a lot of you may be practitioners, but some of you are probably academics out there. But um, my view of the world is I, I have a skill set and I sort of, um, we have to change with the time. You know, I started working on uh, jet fuel, uh, pesticides and, and then JP4 jet fuel, then chlorinated solvents, and now I work on PFAS. And in a way I have to shift with where the interest is and the funding, um, not, not entirely different from what a consulting firm may have to do um, to stay 
current and active and publish and, and get research money. So um, yeah. we have to get research dollars to support our, our program. And, and this picture shows a bunch of grad students and postdocs that are in my group and, and that we work hard, but we still have fun. Um, part of the reason I like academics is it, it keeps me young because I, I work with a lot of younger people and I try to uh, help their careers and send them off to, you know, to work for people like Gorm and others um, in, the, in the industry. <clears throat> we, we now have funding from uh, CERTIP and EPA to look at, uh, to look at PFAS remediation um, and fate and transport. Um, and so my expertise is really in fate, transport and remediation. And I collaborate with a lot of um, industry partners um, and TRS is one of those. And I really like having those collaborations with industry because it, in a way it drives my research to make it um, more practical. I mean, we still do very fundamental work but how can we relate that or help um, advance the field so that practitioners can do a better job with their cleanup and answer questions? Um, and, and PFAS is a really hard one. There's not standards for everything, and there's certainly not labeled standards that we can track um, for all the compounds. So that's where the non-targeted comes into play, which means you basically measure everything in your sample, and you can pick out fluorinated compounds because of the mass resolution defect. And then there's some databases where you can then match those using um, MS2, so the basically triple quad analysis. The problem is quantification. So we get what we call semi-quantification. So you use a reference, reference standard that you think is close in terms of its ionization energy and those types of things. Um, and so you can get a, a semi-quantitative or a qualitative um, assessment of how much is there, even if you don't have the standard but you have to pick a compound that's similar to it and see how it responds in that spec in that matrix. And then you can use that to get an idea of if it's high or low and kind of rough concentration. Yeah. But that's the kind of crazy stuff we do in the lab now. And, and I would say this is one of the biggest barriers uh, to doing research. Um, <clears throat> and especially if you want to do low concentrations. So, yeah. you know, and, and when we get into this, everyone is like, well, did you get to the, you know, the target concentration, either it's a soil concentration or water concentration, you can study reactions at one milligram per liter. A lot of people do that, and it's relatively easy to measure it. You don't need quite a sophisticated instrumentation. But when you're trying to measure um, 20 parts per trillion of all these different compounds, it's definitely a challenge. And, and this is probably the biggest uh, barrier for people to get involved in this research. Yeah. And um, of course, um You've seen other people in the industry treating PFAS with different temperatures, but but you had to make your own experiments as well, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. You, you did, and which is <laughs> not that I'm entirely a skeptic, but I like to you know make sure it's good. And, and one of the reasons um, Gorman and Emily are, are great to work with is because they don't mind me trying to reproduce their data and trying to figure out what's going on. So we took. Uh, on this ESTCP project, we're trying to do a heating at Eielson Air Force Base in, in Alaska. And so uh, we've got the soil from that site. It's a little, it was a temperature ramp. So just let me explain this for a second. We went from, we started at zero, of course, uh, time zero. And then we heated for one hour at 100 degrees. And then we heated for another hour at 200 degrees, another hour at 300, and then another hour at 400 degrees C. So it was a temperature ramp. And what we did was we destructively sampled at each point because we basically got the same information that Emily got, which is you need to get to, you know, above 300 uh, heat and, and to, to, till you see this removal. And then we see complete removal of the target compounds 
below the concentrations that we can measure or below the target concentrations. So the nice thing is we, we, we were able to reproduce what Gorman and Emily had seen in their preliminary studies, which is always a good thing. Yeah, and it's astonishing that this was accomplished in four hours, where in, in, the, in our laboratory studies, I think we took two weeks or 10 days. At, yeah. And in the field, we spent at least that long at, at mm -hmm. temperature for that. So this is pretty amazing. Um, but I guess we don't believe that this is complete complete removal so quickly, do we? Um, or at least we, um, I know you also looked at other compounds, not just these targeted compounds. Right, so that was the, so the next thing is, of course, I'm always looking for, you know, what's, we're trying to get mass balance and it's really hard in these systems. Um, and so we're trapping the off gas and, and again, these were laboratory scale studies that were done in a column that, that was um, inside a, um, a quartz crystal column and we put the soil in there and then we heat it up in, a, in an oven and we blow nitrogen through that and then we collect the off gas and, and we try a number of different traps um, but we're mostly settling on liquid traps now um, and then we analyze those but what we found was we did targeted and non-targeted and we can see a lot of other compounds in the soil right um, which is uh, I think that's just the way it's going to be in reality, when you have a site that's contaminated with AFFF, for example, um, you're not going to just see the compounds that maybe uh, you see in the news or people are, you know, have on a list. And what we see is that the targeted compounds, as we saw with the waters analysis, all those were removed. We can't detect them anymore. Um, but we're seeing all these uh, these different products. What we're really doing now is trying to understand this. This is where the research part comes in. We're trying to get mass balance and identify these and quantify them um, and understand which ones were there before, which ones were, were created. Um, but as you can imagine, it's like it's a very complicated uh, scenario because we have so many chemicals and we have these reactions happening on top of that. So Emily, um, with all that we've done so far and what we've learned in the laboratory, you know, how, how close would you say we are to to having a solution for, for PFAS in soil? Yeah, we are very close. So we are still working, as Kurt mentioned, on optimizing the heating duration that would be required to reach uh, the targeted PFAS concentrations. But through a lot of the work that, that Kurt is doing, um, we recently received ESTCP funding. So Brown University and TRS are both subcontractors to an ESTCP funding funded project. And on, you know, we are we just finished installing all of the heating casing infrastructure this week. There is a pile at Allison Air Force Base where we're able to uh, heat the entire pile in the field demonstration, and we will be actively heating this in the next couple of months. So we're very close. And um, as part of the ESTCP project, they are investing um, a, a significant amount in analytical. So we are able to uh, have OTM45, which is a a rigorous uh, vapor analytical technique and method that we're using. And we're looking at our different vapor and liquid process streams and um, being able to analyze them at a level that gives us a lot of certainty of um, to ensure that we are extracting PFAS that we're, we're heating and any byproducts um, that could potentially be formed. Yeah, so just to follow up on that, um, we'll um, basically at the field site, OTM 45 is a, is a collection process uh, that EPA just put out. And 
some of those samples will go to a commercial lab to analyze for PFAS, and then some of them will come to my lab to look at the byproducts using the non-targeted. Um, and so that's how we're going to look at this in the field to see what products are forming um, or we're collecting in the gas phase. And then also look at uh, how we can treat that gas phase stream. Um, that's part of the challenge, I think, with PFAS remediation is that um, even if you do plasma, you, you'll see a lot of byproducts being formed. So you have to be careful and do this type of analysis that we're doing. Um, and it's it's expensive and it's it's sort of, uh, but I think it's necessary because we have to be careful about the things we're producing. And we are selecting a safe option for vapor and liquid treatment here. So it, rather than trying to target oxidation, um, Kurt was mentioning byproduct formation, we're using carbon for absorption. The majority of PFAS that are removed from the, the stockpile will be transferred to the aqueous phase, but there's a small amount that will maintain in the, in the vapor phase. And we're using carbon for adsorption just to help remove you know, the potential as, as that's still being um, better understood. And there's a significant amount of ESTCP uh, resources that are being um, invested in higher temperature, you know, trying to destroy these compounds at higher temperatures. So as we continue to understand that better, um, we we wanted to go ahead and go with a safer option with carbon treatment for vapors. What other um, <clears throat> what other research projects are we doing with, for PFAS? Yeah, the Department of Defense has been very interested in PFAS research recently, and they um, we are a part of TRS. Um, four different uh, Department of Defense funded projects. So two of them are focused on PFAS thermal treatment. So one is in collaboration with Kurt Pennell and Brown University. And then on the other, we're um, doing it, that's for an ex situ demonstration. And we're also doing an in situ thermal treatment. And that's in collaboration with NAFAC and Jacobs and Patel. So um, a lot of support there. And then we have two other Department of Defense projects um, that are focused more on PFAS water treatment. And we're using a perfluoride um, flocculent technology, and then also um, clean out of firefighting systems using this um, perfluoride flocculent technology. Fantastic. Um, Kurt, you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe a, a little bit unfair question to you, but, but with everything you know now, do you, do you think thermal treatment will end up being um, an effective solution for PFAS treatment? Yeah, so I think in a lot of situations, I think it'll be a cost-effective and an effective technology um, for treating PFAS, um, especially if we can figure out all these uh, byproducts and things like that. I think that's the key. And I think actually that's the key for all technologies going after PFAS. And it's, um, we just have to be looking at it and we're sharing our data and, and we got a, you know, one question was like, how do we ensure this? And the way we ensure it is to look for those things. If you don't look for them, you won't find them. We, we try to find the mass balance and that's what we do in the lab and that's what we're interested in. So we're trying to figure out where that mass is going. Um, and that's why what we're trying to do to ensure that it, it'll be effective. Um, I'm, I'm certain that we can, you know, with, with thermal, you can remove those targeted compounds. Um, the question we have now is how do we do the mass balance and how do we make sure that we remove um, a lot of these byproducts? Um, and if we leave them, if we leave some behind, are they below levels that are acceptable from a risk perspective? And that's, that's a bigger question, but I think that's where we'll be headed. Um, but it's true for, I, I want to emphasize, it's, it's true for a lot of technologies. These things are not easy to break down and you may break down the parent but you need to look for the daughter products um, 
in order to say that something is, you know, effective in a, in a way. It's going to be, a, I'm pretty sure a lot of technology is going to be effective to remove the parent, but to, to remove everything is, is going to be the challenge, in my opinion. Thank you very much. One more question. Um, basically, Emily, the, uh, the CERTA BSTCP program, you know, how, how, what, what important ha importance has that has had for our research and, and how do we look at that now? Yeah, it has been uh, such a such a great experience for TRS to be a part of that community. The amount of idea sharing and collaboration, uh, we feel very supported just through through all of these projects. We have regular meetings, um, you know, where where investigators get together and we're able to share ideas and help share our lessons learned and things we're learning as we're doing testing, both in the lab and in the field. And it's, it's such a nice opportunity to be a part of an environment that's full of um, firms that are implementing in the field, but also universities that are actively uh, evaluating and looking at more closely at you know what's actually happening in the field. And I think that's one of the things we have loved so much about working with Kurt is our eyes have been um, really opened as well on further, you know, what exactly is happening in the soil through this non-targeted analysis. And it's um, at the end of the day, we we want to get the soil clean, and and this analysis is helping us to do that. So we're um, just excited to be a part of it, and it's been just a really good opportunity for us as a company. Yeah, and for me, I really like the ESTCP program because I get access to you know, field materials and get to see what's actually going out in the real world um, and not just like in my laboratory. I'm not sure I'm gonna make it to Alaska, but I make it to some sites. And uh, it's just good to get out and see um, that the work we're doing is helping to support um, advancement of the, of the, of the, basically the profession of environment engineering and remediation. So that's, that's really the goal of my research is to help advance the field as best I can. Kurt, I think we need to schedule a field trip to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.